It's 2020 and currently the world is experiencing a crisis like never seen before. The coronavirus has rapidly spread across the globe, collapsing industries, hospitalising thousands of people and resulting in many fatalities. In this episode, our Training and Development Director, Damien Taylor, is taking on a deep dive journey into the investigation side of the SCADI business with our Founder and Managing Director, Nicholas Corey. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the SCADI podcast, episode eight. Uh, as you can see today, we've got a slight role reversal. Uh, I'll be asking questions of our uh, founder and, and CIO, uh, Nick Corey. And actually, we're going to talk today um, about the SCADI investigations business. So I think probably the best place to start, Nick, is um, is the sort of history of how we how we as a firm moved into that investigations business. Because I think when we when you started, Way back when, I think eight nine years ago, that's that's not really the the, the remit you had. Yeah, that's that's right, Damien. I mean, Scardi. Um, I mean, it is it is quite funny. So, I uh, this business started um, as a very simple consultancy business, effectively a you know one man band contracting and working as an ex trader within internal audit, and um, of course. My naivety, and, and I, this is probably shared with a lot of front office people, is that I actually had no idea what internal audit really was, because the only times I had encountered internal audit was through the investigations that they had conducted throughout my career. And actually, investigations for internal audit is not really um, a you know, mainstream part of their function. That's something they, they may get called into at, at various times. Um, their main business is about reviewing and, and assessing the strength and improving controls around a business. Um, but the kind of work that I was doing for Internal Audit at the time at the, at the bank where I was working um, really sort of played to, the, to my strengths, which were the kind of deep dive testing and really, you know, assessing the things that we've been told and figuring out how to test those. And it became, I think, quite apparent, you know, to myself, but also the people that I was, that, that I was working with, that I had a real, you know, I found that part of work really enjoyable. And as the trust grew um, and there were things that needed investigating at the time, then I started to be shown more of that kind of activity. And really over the years, I mean, you know, move forward kind of eight years now and and investigations is by far our biggest franchise. That's the thing that we do the most of, Um, you know, followed uh, second by the review and control business and then closely by the expert witness business. Um, But it is interesting how all of those three things have an interrelationship. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you're looking at the review and control business and you're helping, you know, a financial institution review businesses, put in the right controls, assess them, you're really getting, you know, ahead of the problems, if you like. And then when you're in the investigations business, it's because a problem has occurred or is suspected to have occurred. um, And you're going in, you know, looking at that, 
Perhaps your findings will feed back to the other control functions, the internal audit function, compliance function, the finance function, risk management function, whatever it happens to be, where they may need to, to strengthen the controls around a business. And then finally, of course, if you're operating in the expert witness arena, it's because the problems have already happened and people are now litigating um, as a result of the, of the problems, if it's a case revolving around that kind of activity. And we, we have indeed been involved in, in those kind of cases um, you know, particularly things I can think of around uh, an example would be uh, foreign exchange front running, for example. And again, that sort of activity, those kind of cases are very, in, uh, can be very investigative because you are looking at the kind of, um, you know, data, trade data, transaction data um, to assess what has happened. Yeah, I was going to sort of talk to you about what sort of types of investigations can you get involved in? Obviously, you've talked about the data there. Can you give? I mean, I know it's it's tricky. We can't you can't talk any in any too much detail about specific cases. But are they all very data dependent, or is actually a lot of it to do with the expertise that Scardi's picked up from either working in the front office themselves or just seeing how certain products uh, evolve or trade that we can we can add that value. Um, so is it just knowledge, or is it kind of a lot of it deep deep dive into data? It's, it's a mixture of both, to be fair. Um, I mean, certainly we, we wouldn't be on this playing field if we didn't have that, that knowledge and that experience. And I think that's what we really bring to the table with the people that we help. You know, we work with some very, very good, I mean, really good um, investigative functions that would be very, very well equipped, um, but they just don't have that deep, in-depth product knowledge, which is what you really need um, to really get in and, and get to the grips with the kind of challenges that they are presented with when they're presented with an investigation. Um, because, you know, quite often it's not just um, simple, um, you know, problems with a, with, a, with, a, with a business or a product that you can face head on. Quite often these things are interwoven with the interrelationship with the front office, with the support functions that they've been you know, using to support their business. There may be elements of you know, people trying to persuade other functions to do a particular treatment that could be advantageous to the front office, for example. And also, you know, there is also that, that knowledge gap that could be exploited. So what do I mean by that? Well, for example, you may have front office practitioners that are a little bit economical with the features of a particular product because if those features were known, then maybe it wouldn't qualify for the kind of accounting treatment, for example, that they're trying to persuade the finance function or the credit risk management function that they should be allowed to have on this product. Um, and so it's that kind of thing. So when you have those kind of very complex um, situations it's and, and often these things well they, they of course they have to be historical because you're looking back over something but what I mean is they can be really quite historical we can go back a number of years to look at a problem which may have had its foundation six seven eight years ago um, but the problems won't have actually manifested until quite recently because you know, the, the, the things that were wrong with the transaction haven't been uncovered till later on. Um, so it, it's really about, you know, seeing those kind of interrelationships and drawing on your knowledge, drawing on your experience, 
but also going back to the time, putting yourself in the steps of those people that are operating at the time to look with their eyes. Because, of course, the other thing that is very difficult to manage, and, and you know, we're all human, is that we have 2020 hindsight when looking back at a situation. And really, that you've got to give the, the benefit to the people that you are looking at at the time. Because, you know, in my experience, human beings are actually tend to be good. You know, I haven't met many, you know, bad actors. I have met some in our, through our investigations. But generally, what tends to happen is people make errors of judgment. Um, people make mistakes. People make assumptions. They do human things. And it's those kind of consequences that you need to look at and try to assess, you know, well, what, what was the reason for doing that? Were they genuinely trying to do something wrong here? Or were they actually, you know, dealing, you know, as many of us are, with a completely new situation? So you've got to come in with, I think, a very unbiased approach, have, a, you know, open to all of the possibilities, but really draw upon your experience and knowledge um, that can really help you. Um, and talking about the kind of investigations, it, it really it, it depends on the situation at the time. I mean, one of the very first um, investigations that we helped out on and, and really you know, took, took hold of the whole investigation and effectively given a, a blank piece of paper, um, a bank asked us to um, help them understand the weaknesses or potential weaknesses around a very high-profile benchmark fixing process. And in order to sample for that, to try and assess um, the times at when there might have been vulnerabilities, you know, we had to come up with an approach that would filter out you know, three years' worth of data. In this case, these were recordings of particular fixing calls that had taken place to try and listen and see if there were you know, the, the kind of uh, fixing calls that may have caused problems. And to do that, we employed, a, you know, just statistical techniques to try and pick out um, calls that we thought would have been of interest around price activity. So again, just using standard, um, uh, you know, statistical uh, standard deviations to see when there were big moves, when there were, you know, highs in the price, when there were, you know, uh, recent lows in the price, to pick out the data points to sample with. Um, so that was an example of something that, that, you know, started out as being really just a data analytical exercise. But then very swiftly, once you had those points selected and chosen, really moved into a very much more a kind of qualitative approach where you're listening to the phone calls, you're trying to assess what is happening on the phone calls. Because, again, we're all market, ex-market practitioners, ex-market traders. You know, we've been through a lot of different kinds of um, transaction processes, whether it's fixing calls, whether it's auctions, um, and so on and so forth, uh, whether it's, you know, matchings. Um, and so to have that experience and to listen to the kind of activity that's going on on a call and really try to understand, you know, just from, from the voices, you know, you're not presented with the, with the price action in that particular occasion. It was just purely, you know, how people reacted you know, were the fixes explored properly? Were the customers going to be treated fairly as a result of the approach uh, that was conducted on the call? And that was an example of a, you know, a very kind of, I suppose, as I say, you know, data-heavy initial situation that moved very much into a qualitative 
process. And then, of course, there was the challenge of, you know, illustrating your findings in that, uh, yeah. in that case. Um, again, so it, it's a presentational challenge. But a lot of the, uh, the, the, the things that we are um, generally looking at tend to be whistleblow-led, you know, so it's, it's, you know, and the vast majority of that, and obviously we've just recently had the, the last episode of the SCADI podcast, you know, devoted to the, the topic of whistleblowing so that, you know, very crucial that people understand and know um, what whistleblowing is um, because it's very integral to the kind of business that we conduct. And often in the case of, of whistleblowing, it's very, very difficult to unravel you know, the allegations that are being made um, by an individual. Um, it, there is a sort of, you know, again, there is that knowledge gap because, the, you know, it's not like SCARDI staff are being presented <clears throat> with the allegations. What tends to happen is the whistleblower calls the whistleblowing hotline and then they have, you know, a number of meetings perhaps with the whistleblower trying to understand and ascertain, you know, the allegations that are being levelled. Um, and it can be, you know, quite challenging um, you know, depending on, again, what, what role the person has, you know, have they seen something from a particular side? Are they seeing something from all sides? Um, so that is, uh, again, you know, for us, when we're coming into an investigation, it's often about trying to understand in the first place what, what is being alleged, what is, what is being said here. And if that's the case, if these are the things that are being alleged, then, you know, simply put, how are we going to tackle this problem? How do we get to the heart of what's being said? And again, the other challenge with whistleblowers is that sometimes, you know, you do have access to the whistleblower and that makes things a lot easier because then you can come back and you can ask um, the questions, uh, you know, of them, you know, about their particular allegations, etc. On other occasions, it may not be possible to speak to the whistleblower. Maybe the whistleblower needs to be protected. Maybe the, the whistleblower isn't um, wanting to come and have further conversations with people that they don't know and potentially mistrust. Um, so then you don't have access to the whistleblower, and that can be particularly challenging because, again, you have to take the allegations at face value um, and give them you know, the very best review um, that you can possibly do. Um, so that that's um, sorry. Go on, you. No, no. I was just no. That was a. a, a I mean, you know, it's it's something I don't know that much about. It's a very interesting um, summary of what you you get up to. And actually, I was just wondering. Obviously, when you come in on day one of an investigation, uh, you know, there could be theoretically sort of terabytes worth of data that you have to go through. Some of it may be literally price data in a database. Some of it may be uh, email, big email chains. Some of it may be. What we call e-coms, I suppose, you know, phone re- recorded lines. I mean, how, where do you start with that? Do you have a, a do you have bits of software that can sort of start to break that down rapidly? How would you go about that? It, it is. It's a sampling challenge. It's like anything. You're trying to sift through vast quantities of data to arrive at the the, the really relevant, um, the highly relevant information. And of course, you know the the. You know, as, as we've said, the volume of data can be massive. If you're in a an e- e-coms review, electronic communications review, looking at emails from a number of different people or custodians over a period of time, you know that can literally turn into millions of emails. 
Um, and so what you do is a first sort of pass is have a number of search terms that are important to the matter at hand um, that will go in and as a first pass, a first level review, go through that universe and then present you with just the emails that are sensitive to those particular search terms. Um, and I, I say also we've done it other ways where we've actually used algorithms without particular search terms where we've actually gone in and trained the algorithm. So the algorithm has gone away and worked and just said, look, we're just going to present you with a number of emails. You tell us if you think this is sensitive. And after, you know, whatever it is, 1,000, 1,500 emails, then the algorithm has learned what you're interested in um, and then can present you with that universe of emails. And where SCADI really gets to work is in what we call the second level review. So the, the relevant um, emails have been pulled out or recoms have been pulled out. And then we're going in and looking at those again with a fresh pair of eyes, but more from a kind of, you know, practitioner manual perspective, going in and looking in uh, to those emails and seeing what, what has been said. And in particular, it's not just what's been said, but of course, it's all of the attachments that are attached to those emails. Because, you know, often, um, you know, we, we find that, that that's where the, the best kind of paper trail can be. So to give you an example of what I'm talking about, you know, going back to a trader that you know, knowingly is aware that there are particular features of a, an instrument or, or a, a security that they're transacting in. And on a first pass, they may present a paper uh, for trade approval to, you know, their superior. And then when you see, when you find the second or third version of that paper, and you do a kind of a version comparison of the, of the two, some of those key features have been left off the later memo. And you have to ask yourself the question, well, why is that the case? Why have those features been left off? Is it because they're irrelevant, not important to the matter at hand? Or is it because actually someone didn't want those features to be shown, to be uh, people to be made aware of them because it wouldn't help their case? And it can be the former, it can be the latter. Obviously, if it's the latter, can be a problem. Um, and so it's that kind of uh, thing that we're, we're trying to look at. And again, you know... It, that's just a sampling situation, getting to that relevant set of email universe. It's the same um, when you're looking at data. And as I said, you know, the statistical analysis, getting to that pool of data to find the kind of things that you're actually interested in um, looking at. Again, it's just trying to sift through and getting to the, to the relevant things. Yeah, actually, that you sort of remind me of the, the rogue trading um presentation that that I put together well, that you put together a while that I've given a few times looking at you know the three uh, the three main Jerome Curviel, Quaker Adeboli and Nick Leeson you know if people are up to no good uh, they tend to be relatively IT savvy so they tend to know how to hide their tracks or they know how to send emails off here and there to try and sort of com confuse and 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 can trip people up as they might come to look at, at what's going on so yeah, no, that's very interesting to hear. That's exactly right, because, you know, I think it was Curviel, wasn't it, who, who went out to different control staff each time. Indeed. And he rotated the products that he traded so that he wouldn't run into the same kind of people. But also, it's like anything. Yeah. If, if you're presented with um, a situation for the first time, it's a learning process, isn't it? So if you're going to go to a different person each time, then they're always going to be a... Or, chances are they're going to be a novice 
in what you're looking at. And that's always going to help, you know, the corrupt individual, such as a road trader trying to undertake that kind of activity. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and how do you, I mean, is there a way to sort of measure how well you've done, as it were? Is there a way to benchmark what, you know, is an investigation will take place and then it gets to the end and hopefully has been deemed a success? Is is there any way that that's measured? Obviously, my assumption is you the reporting of that investigation goes normally to quite high levels within financial institutions. Is that correct? And, and possibly even to regulators? Yeah, I mean, whenever we are working now on, on any kind of investigation, we always operate under the assumption that any reporting that we do, any report that we write, is going to potentially end up in a number of different hands. It, we operate a lot of the time working um, and reporting into, um, you know, the, the you know, board level um, people. Um, can be the supervisory board, can be the management board, um, etc. It often is, uh, it's certainly going to the heads of the department that you work in. We work for heads of internal audit, we work for heads of compliance. Um, that usually goes up, you know, to, to their level and also to the other investigative functions. There may be other, you know, there may be different investigative functions within financial institutions that come together as one anti-financial crime group and share their findings between each other. So already you can see that your reporting is shared internally within the institution with a number of people. But if the matter is serious enough, um, and often you know, we, we've had situations where um, we've been working with um, external counsel for a financial institution, where you know, the law firm is, is acting for uh, the financial institution, advising them um, because they are having some interaction with the regulators, for example. Um, and we are acting effectively as the subject matter experts advising both the law firm and the financial institution on the kind of things that we are seeing um, that, that's occurred around you know, the particular transactions or products that, that we're looking into. And you know, that's a situation where, of course, you know, law firms, that's their, I guess I wouldn't say their bread and butter, but of course they're highly ex experienced at, at writing um, these kind of reports that are going to go forward to the regulator. But we have input into those reports as well. And it's very, very important that you are aware that that's you know, where your reporting is going to end up. And we've also had a situation where something that we um, investigated a number of years ago um, then ended up, uh, that, that report ended up in, in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. So in the media, for example. And again, you know, you can't control where people could um, send, you know, um, some report that, that you've had a hand in writing. So obviously it's paramount each time that we operate with that, with our eyes wide open, that this is potentially what could happen. And you therefore have to be, you know, very, very careful, um, you know, but also, you know, confident in the things that you are finding um, in your findings and the things that you are reporting. Hmm. Very interesting. Thank you. And given this sort of strange uh, post-COVID world that we live in, I mean, I think, or do you think that, you know, there could be issues for investigations going forward because there may well be sort of control gaps while people have had to work from home and they've had all that possible break in recorded lines uh, that, that could could become an issue? 
You've certainly seen the regulators warning about it, right? So over in the in the States, in the UK, the regulators are warning about just that and saying to financial institutions, you need to have got your controls in order by now. Um, and of course, you know, we, we were thinking that um, potentially the virus might be a, a six-month affair, things might come back to normal. We're experiencing now that we're sort of going into almost like a, you know, double-dip lockdown, if you like. Um, and so there is, you know, more chance and, and more activity of things going wrong as, as people transact at home. Um, you know, they're, they're in, you know, they, there may be very, very strong and robust controls around, you know, recording of, of calls, um, of logging of transactions and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, if you are in a household where there's a number of people operating, you know, things like preventing insider dealing and so on and so forth, that's going to be very, very difficult um, to manage. Um, so there are real, uh, real challenges out there um, that potentially, you know, we, we may find ourselves looking at in the future. I mean, you know, what I can observe is that of our businesses with the virus, investigations is the one that has been absolutely virus proof if you like it's been absolutely yeah. robust it has carried on because you know people will always need to investigate these kinds of problems you can't simply park them and say oh, we'll, we'll look at them in 12 months time it, it's not possible you know you're under regulatory demands to look at stuff at the end of the day if you're a financial institution you want to know what's gone wrong because you don't want more of this activity occurring so there's always a drive um, to to look at investigations you know the difference between that and say the review and control business which as I mentioned is like our second most important business that's a business that I expect to come back very very hard for SCADI in the next 18 to 24 months as people return to normality and need to start looking through you know what has occurred how do we strengthen things yeah. if this happens again in the future how would we operate differently etc um, and then in the case of the expert witness side, that has been interesting in that there was effectively a slowdown when we went into lockdown as the courts effectively had to kind of work out the new way of operating. Um, and now, you know, we are back functioning. We've, we've had a case um, just recently all conducted um, in camera, if you like, um, but in court. Um, and that is that is, you know, been the you know, perfectly acceptable norm. Um, so that business, you know, continuing and carrying on. But as I say, investigation certainly has been the thing that has, has carried on through. Um, I mean, just sort of, you know, thinking about why um, this business has been successful for us. Now, and I have to say, for me, it, you know, it is the most interesting um, work that we do, I think. Um, I really do enjoy sort of getting in and helping people, but really looking at the kind of challenging problems um, that, are f that, that we're faced with, you know, there, there may be a certain amount of repetition because you see patterns in behavior and patterns in techniques, but quite often, you know, you are coming into stuff that, that's really very, very new. Um, we have, you know, operating in London as we do, uh, and obviously we're mindful of, of Brexit, but you know, for all of your and my trading careers, and, and you and I have worked for a Dutch bank, I've, I've worked for an American bank, I've worked for a German bank, I've worked for, Ameri uh, for an, another American bank. Um, we, we have encountered through our careers, um, 
multilingual people. You know, if you remember, you know, the, the very first place I worked, Bearings, the Emerging Markets Bank or the Emerging Markets Broker, you know, why I think we were particularly good is that if you went to the Turkish desk, you know, there was the Turkish salesman, Turkish national selling to the customers of Bearings and the same on the Greek desk, etc., um, the Portuguese desk and so on and so forth. And you've always had those, you know, those, those languages and, you know, the French banks have always been, you know, historically very, very good at derivatives and, and uh, structured products. Um, and Scardi has, has really done well at um, bringing in experienced multilingual market practitioners to help the customers. Um, so we have, um, I mean, just at the moment, we are operating uh, with Italian speakers, we're operating with um, Spanish speakers, and we're operating with French uh, speakers um, at the moment um, in, in various different um, cases that we have uh, that we're conducting at the moment. Um, and the other thing, too, is, is looking into a situation quite often, um, I mean, I'm, you know, I can think of, of one particular a uh, bank that we help, which ha- is, has a very, very traditional um, and conservative approach and tends to have people that tend to stay in that institution for a very long time. They tend not to be people that move around the city changing job to job. Um, and that can be very, very positive, obviously, for the longevity of the firm. But it also can have negatives because it's very hard for that firm or it is a challenge for that firm to actually benchmark what activity is occurring uh, across the street. And so when we come in, uh, you know, as a SCADI with, you know, four or five investigators working with that bank, the great thing is that those investigators themselves, you know, like myself, I've worked in four or five institutions and the other people around the table have as well. You're bringing in a wealth of experience of not just you know, all of your knowledge going back throughout your career, but also how the treatment has been at the different institutions that you have worked in over time. And that's yeah. very, very helpful, um, particularly when you're trying to step back in time and assess, you know, what was happening. You know, we do look at stuff that, that has been occurring during the financial crisis. And after the financial crisis, there were a lot of changes, a lot of regulatory change brought in. And so you had risk management departments, you had finance departments really trying to you know, rip apart new regulations and think, OK, how, how does this apply to the capital that we, we are going to you know, allocate to these trades. What what do these trades actually look like? You know, what is the treatment that we should be used? Because nothing is that simple in the financial markets. You know, it's 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 a wonderful world if you can look at a trading desk and go, oh, they trade X. Therefore, it's really simple. We know what their RWA is, etc. You know, these are some of the most innovative people working in you know on the planet, but you know, particularly in the United Kingdom. You know, they're innovators, they're trying to do things um, to help people to, you know, provide liquidity, provide innovative structures. And it often means that you're, you know, you can be pouring through as the finance function, you know, pouring through pages of regulations uh, from the regulator. And it's very hard to kind of put that, that round pin in that square hole on that deck you've got in front of you. And that's when the kind of argy-bargy comes in, where people are trying to argue, well, no, no, the, the features of this particular product are, means that it, it has to have that treatment because they're X, Y, and Z, and so on and so forth. So again, it's when people are encountering that for the first time, um, you can see 
why people may make you know missteps, may may make errors, and also when people may just frankly game the system. But yeah, I, and I can see why you know we've made our name for ourselves also in the expert witness with those subject matter experts that can sort of reconstruct what it was like to be trading that product at that time because you might look at stuff today and go well that that seems slightly slightly odd but actually that was the way that things were traded across all banks it wasn't just it was one specific thing some one specific bank um doing something nefarious it's just that was the way that that product traded at the time and that was that was seen as as, as standard and normal market practice um so just sorry so I was going to say that's an interesting point, Damien, because, you know, one of the things I you know, often look at in the in the and it's, it's funny how all of our different our businesses are interrelated because, you know, I can talk about investigations. But the fact is, you know, Scardi is a very investigative firm in everything that we do, whether it's expert witness, whether it's review and control. It doesn't really matter. You know, we're always trying to get to the guts of a problem. And that that involves some kind of investigation. And one of the things that I find really fascinating um, as a topic, and I've sound a bit, bit, bit of a, sp- a spot at this stage, but it's new, you know, new product approval and new yeah. transaction approval. Because, of course, new product approval is one of those things where you know, you're using that forum, you're using that platform to get all of the control functions together to look at a, a new business or a new product, whatever it happens to be, a new way of transacting. And with all the best will in the world you can't know what's going to happen with this product through its life cycle. You have a fairly good idea because you might launch something with a particular purpose. But you can't then, you know, fathom for some structured product trader that then is going to have a look at that product that's been set up and gone, oh, I can utilize that. I could, I could take that. I could securitize that. I could wrap it up. I could put this wrap around it, this second wrap around it, and I've got another product. But you know what? All of those things have gone through a new product's approval, so I'm, I'm fine. Everything's approved by the financial institution, but probably not this thing that they've created. Um, yeah. And that's, I always think that those um, approval processes could do with a kind of, you know, a look back you know, two years into the life cycle of a product and just review, we approved this product on, on the basis of these assumptions. Have these assumptions, you know, been found to have been correct? I mean, would people have liked to have had a look back at uh, collateralized debt obligations, you know, in the 2008 crisis, yeah. for example, because, you know, you don't know the problems with a product until it gets stress tested. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just before we we finish up, at the at the end of an investigation, what tends tends to happen then, and 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 where can we show that we as a firm have added value to to an institution? I, I thought you were going to ask me about the the after investigation party, um, <laughs> which uh, which uh, I can't say whether that is a is a feature, but sometimes you you have you know you have been in, but truthfully you know you are in something for a very very long period of time, or yeah. you can be potentially. I mean, the, the shortest investigations, you know, we've done, we, we've done a, a piece of, of verification work for a compliance department um, that was being put in front of the regulators, and that, that work took three weeks. And that was very, very unusual, actually, because quite often um, we can be in something that may take a number of months to put together, um, you know, to understand um, and to see. But 
really what, what's important is obviously, you know, the report has to be written, as we've explained, but it's really then what are the lessons learned? How does the bank take forward what you've discovered and then apply that to, you know, what's been missed? And, and that's why it's interesting depending on where different investigative functions are set up. Because as I say, we work with some that are, are part of the internal audit function, and they're very, very interested with, you know, what particular controls have been missed, what are the gaps, etc. cetera, um, you know, has the, the, the routine um, front-to-back audits that have gone on in this business missed these things because they've been scoped in a particular way that has meant that they haven't looked at this area? Um, and then, you know, it can be that, that they are functions that are, are run out of, uh, of legal and compliance, which are very much more, you know, interested with, you know, what are the legal ramifications, what are the regulatory things that have occurred, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very, very important to sort of think about, you know, what are, what are the things that, that they can take forward from this? You know, are there some very direct control gaps and, and learnings that can be um, taken forward? And then, uh, you know, something that, you know, we wouldn't have uh, any impact on, but something that we do very much, you know, use as a tool of measurement is at the end of the day, if there has been wrongdoing, then a bonus clawback, for example, for the compensation of the people that are involved can be initiated. And, wow. you know, thus far, based on the work that we've done, there's been more than $10 million worth of bonus clawbacks initiated um, against people that we've looked at for, for um, through our investigations. Um, and it's, you know, again, I think you're asking me, how, you know, how do you benchmark um, your success? Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult, but I think that's the only real measure um, that I can give to people of, you know, the impact, apart from the fact of having, a, you know, a number of repeat customers um, that enjoy, you know, working with SCADI and, and utilising us, and, and we very much enjoy continuing to help them. Brilliant. Nick, thank you very much for that. That was certainly uh, very informational for myself uh, and uh, hopefully will be very informative for our listeners too. Thank you. Great stuff. Thanks very, very much, Damien. Keep well. Thank you for listening to episode eight of the SCARDI podcast. Stick with us on this journey as we, like many of you, are trying to navigate these very uncertain times. This is the SCARDI podcast. <laughs>